Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project comes from Cole Hahn, the fashion brand that's acknowledging extraordinary people who write, read, and shape the world through their extraordinary stories. Find these and more at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature the poetry of Michael Andaji from a 1996 special event. There are few writers like Andaji in the world, for his range as an artist is significant. He is an award-winning novelist, an accomplished and admired poet. He has edited films and written journalism. But I would argue that he is more poet than anything else. You can see this most clearly in his novels. His fiction generally ignores the needs and requirements of plot or traditional character development in favor of rich and textured language. So in this episode, we'll hear Andaji read from his poems, skipping across time and through his lengthy career. We'll hear poems rooted deeply in his native Colombo, Sri Lanka, and also references to street corners in Toronto, his adopted home of many years. He is an artist practicing at the height of his powers, and his work has the effect of transporting the listener with often a single turn of phrase. Few writers read as beautifully and with so much musicality as he does, so this is a special treat. Here's Andaji. I'm going to read um, uh, mostly poetry tonight, and um, some old, some new, and also now and then read bits of prose from Running in the, Running in the Family, in the skin of a line, and if I get to it, the English patient. But it'll be mostly poetry. This is a poem called The Cinnamon Peeler. If I were a cinnamon peeler, I would ride your bed and leave the yellow bark dust on your pillow. Your breasts and shoulders would reek. You could never walk through markets without the profession of my fingers floating over you. The blind would stumble, certain of whom they approached. Though you might bathe under rain gutters, monsoon. Here on the upper thigh at this smooth pasture, neighbor to your hair, or the crease that cuts your back, this ankle. You will be known among strangers as a cinnamon peeler's wife. I could hardly glance at you before marriage, never touch you, your keen-nosed mother, your rough brothers. I buried my hands in saffron, disguised them over smoking tar, helped the honey-gatherers. When we swam once, I touched you in water, and our bodies remained free. You could hold me and be blind of smell. You climbed the bank and said, this is how you touch other women, the grass-cutter's wife, the lime-burner's daughter. And you searched your arms for the missing perfume and knew. What good is it to be the lime burner's daughter, left with no trace, as if not spoken to in the act of love, as if wounded without the pleasure of a scar? You touched your belly to my hands in the dry air and said, I am the cinnamon peeler's wife. Smell me. Um, I wrote that poem uh, when I was working on a book, Running in a Family, and I was back in Sri Lanka. And um, at that same time, my niece, who was about seven years old at the time, uh, was singing me um, songs, street songs called Bailas, in a, quite a bad voice. And I'd just been reading Paul Bowles, who had said this, The Singhalese are beyond a doubt one of the least musical people in the world. It would be quite impossible to have less sense of pitch, line, or rhythm. So this is a sort of celebration beyond Paul Bowles' concepts of art. Okay? And it's called Sweet Like a Crow. Your voice sounds like a scorpion being pushed through a glass tube, like someone has just trodden a peacock, like wind howling in a coconut, like a rusty Bible, like someone pulling barbed wire across a stone courtyard, like a pig drowning a vataka being fried, a bone shaking hands, a frog singing at Carnegie Hall. Like a crow swimming in milk, a nose being hit by a mango, a womb full of twins, a paria dog with a magpie in its mouth, like the midnight jet from Casablanca, like Air Pakistan curry. A typewriter on fire, like a hundred papadangs being crunched, like someone trying to light matches in a dark room, the clicking sound of a reef when you put your head into the sea, a dolphin reciting epic poetry to a sleepy audience, the sound of a fan when someone throws brinjols at it, 
like pineapples being sliced in the petar market, like Beetlejuice hitting a butterfly in midair, like a whole village running naked onto the street and tearing their sarongs, like eight sharks being carried on the back of a bicycle, like three old ladies locked in the lavatory. Like the sound I heard when having an afternoon sleep and someone walked through my room in ankle bracelets. This is a prose bit from Running in the Family about the alphabet. I still believe the most beautiful alphabet was created by the Singhalese. The insect of ink curves into a shape that is almost sickle, spoon, eyelid. The letters are washed blunt glass which betray no jaggedness. Sanskrit was governed by verticals, but its sharp grid features were not possible in Ceylon. Here the older leaves which people wrote on were too brittle. A straight line would cut apart the leaf, and so a curling alphabet was derived from its Indian cousin. When I was five, the only time in my life my handwriting was meticulous. I sat in the tropical classrooms and learned the letters, repeating them page after page, how to write, the self-portrait of language. Years later, looking into a biology textbook, I came across a whole page depicting the small bones in the body and recognized, delighted, the shapes and forms of the first alphabet I ever copied. At St. Thomas's College Boys' School, I had written lines as punishment, 150 times, I must not throw coconuts off the roof of Copleston House, or we must not urinate again on Father Barnabas's tires. A communal protest this time. The idiot phrases moved east across the page as if stretching for longitude and story, some meaning or grace that would occur blazing after so much writing. For years I thought literature was punishment, simply a parade ground. The only freedom writing brought was as the author of rude expressions on walls and desks. In the 5th century BC, graffiti poems were scratched under the rock face of Sigiria, the rock fortress of a despot king short verses to the painted women in the frescoes, which spoke of love in all its confusions and brokenness. Poems to mythological women who consumed and overcame mundane lives. The phrases saw breasts as perfect swans, eyes were long and clean as horizons. The anonymous poets returned again and again to the same metaphors, beautiful, false, compare. These were the first folk poems of the country. When the government rounded up thousands of suspects during the insurgency of 1971, the Vijayalankara campus of the University of Ceylon was turned into a prison camp. The police weeded out the guilty, trying to break their spirit. When the university opened again, the returning student found hundreds of poems written on walls, ceilings, and in hidden corners of the campus. Quatrains in free verse about the struggle, tortures, the unbroken spirit, love of friends. The students went around for days, transcribing them into their notebooks, before they were covered with whitewash and lye. Uh, the, the book is mostly um, a memoir about my parents' generation and, and uh, grandparents. And this is a, a small section about my grandmother. My grandmother Lala was full of the passions, whether drunk or not. She always loved flowers, but in her last decade couldn't be bothered to grow them. Still, whenever she arrived on a visit, she would be carrying an armful of flowers and announce, Darling, I've just been to church and I've stolen some flowers for you. <laughs> These are from Mrs. Abhisekaras. The lilies are from Mrs. Ratnayakas. The agapanthus is from Violet Medenia. And the rest are from your garden. <laughs> she stole flowers compulsively, even in the owner's presence. As she spoke with someone, her straying left hand would pull up a prized rose, along with the roots also that she could appreciate it for that one moment, gaze into it with complete pleasure, swallow its qualities whole, and then hand the flower, discarding it to the owner. She ravaged some of the best gardens in Colombo and Noirelia, and for some years she was barred from the huck of the public gardens. <laughs> Property was there to be taken or given away. She was a lyrical socialist. Her great claim to fame was that she was the first woman in the salon to have a mastectomy. It turned out to be unnecessary, but she always claimed to support modern science, throwing herself into new causes. Even in death, her generosity exceeded the physically possible, for she had donated that body to six hospitals. <laughs> the false breast would never be still for long. 
She was an energetic person. It would crawl over the joint's twin on the right-hand side or sometimes appear on her back. For dancing, she smirked. She called it her wandering Jew and would yell at the grandchildren in the middle of a formal dinner to fetch her tit as she had forgotten to put it on. She kept losing the contraption to servants who were mystified by it, as well as to the dog, Chindit, who would be found gnawing at the foam as if it were tender chicken. She went through four breasts in her lifetime. Once she left on a branch of a tree in Huckler Gardens to dry out after a rainstorm. One flew off when she was riding behind her brother Veer on his motorbike. And the third she was very mysterious about, almost embarrassed, though Lala was never embarrassed. Most believed it had been forgotten after a romantic assignation in Trincomalee with a man who may or may not have been in the cabinet. Uh, this is a poem in a sort of a defense of my handwriting. Um, and it's already explaining uh, what all my postcards mean to various people by simply the pictures on the other side. Translations of my postcards. The peacock means order. The fighting kangaroos mean madness. The oasis means I have struck water. Positioning of the stamp, the despot's head, horizontal or mounted policemen mean political danger. The false date means I'm not where I should be. When I speak of the weather, I mean business. A blank postcard says, I'm in the wilderness. A dog in San Francisco. Sitting in an empty house with a dog from the Mexican circus, old Daisy embraces my only pleasure holding and hugging my friends, education, a wave of eucalyptus, warm granite. These are the things I have in my heart, heart and skills as nothing else. I usually don't like small dogs, but you, like Midwestern women, take over the air. You leap into the air and pivot, a diver going up. You are known to open the fridge and eat when you wish. You can roll down car windows and step out. You know when to get off the elevator. I always wanted to be a dog, but I hesitated, for I thought they lacked certain skills. Now I want to be a dog. <laughs> this is a poem called To a Sad Daughter. All night long, the hockey pictures gaze down at you, sleeping in your tracksuit. Belligerent goalies are your ideal. Threats are being traded, cuts and wounds, all this pleases you. Oh my God, you say at breakfast, reading the sports page over the Alpen as another player breaks his ankle or assaults the coach. When I thought of daughters, I wasn't expecting this, but I like this more. I like all your faults, even your purple moods when you retreat from everyone to sit in bed under a quilt. And when I say like, I mean, of course, love. But that embarrasses you, you who feel superior to black and white movies coaxed for hours to see Casablanca, though you were moved by a creature from the Black Lagoon. One day I'll come swimming beside your ship, or someone will, and if you hear the siren, listen to it, for if you close your ears, only nothing happens. You will never change. I don't care if you risk your life to angry goalies, creatures with webbed feet. You can enter their caves and castles, their glass laboratories, just don't be fooled by anyone but yourself. This is the first lecture I've given you, your sweet sixteen, you said. I'd rather be your closest friend than your father. I'm not good at advice, you know that, but ride the ceremonies until they grow dark. Sometimes you are so busy discovering your friends, I ache with a loss, but that is greed. And sometimes I've gone into my purple world and lost you. One afternoon I stepped into your room. You were sitting at the desk where I now write this, for Scythia outside the window and sun spilled over you like a thick yellow miracle, as if another planet was coaxing you out of the house, all those possible worlds. And you, meanwhile, busy with mathematics. I cannot look at for Scythia now without loss or joy for you. 
you step delicately into the wild world, and your real prize will be the frantic search. Want everything. If you break, break going out, not in. How you live your life, I don't care, but I'll sell my arms for you, hold your secrets forever. If I speak of death, which you fear now greatly, it is without answers, except that each one we know is in our blood. Don't recall graves. Memories permanent. Remember the afternoon's yellow suburban annunciation. Your goalie in his frightening mask dreams perhaps of gentleness. Uh, this next piece is an elegy for a poet, a friend of mine called B.P. Nickel, who died a few years ago. And um, the two things about him, um, he was he loved to sing all the time and always in public, you know, getting on a subway train, he'd be singing out loud. And it's always the song, was always the breeze and I. And uh, the other thing was he had a favorite let letter, which was the letter H. <clears throat> this is called Breeze. Nowadays, I listen only to duets, Johnny Hodges and the Bean, a thin slip of piano behind them, on this page, on this stage, craft, a breeze in a horn. One friend sits back and listens to the other. Nowadays, I want only the wild and tender phrasing of Nighthawk, its air groaned out like the breath of a lover, Rashomon by saxophone. So brother and sister woke miles apart in those 19th century novels you loved with the same wound or desire. We sit down to clean and sharpen the other's most personal lines, a proposal of more, a waving dismissal of whole stanzas in Lethbridge, in Edmonton. You stood with a breeze in an uncomfortable Chinese restaurant in Camrose, getting a second cup at the second cup near Spadina. I almost called you this morning for a phone number. Records I haven't yet returned, tapes you were supposed to make for me. And across the country, tears about your death. I always thought, someone says, he was very good for you. Though I still like Barry, the friends who are not good for me. Along the highway, only the duets and wind fill up my car. I saw the scar of the jet that Sunday, trying to get you out of the sky. Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, an A and an H, a bean and a breeze. All these twin truths. There is bright sumac once more this September along the Bayview extension. From now on, no more solos. I tie you to me. This is a canoeing poem. Uh, there's Mazinaw Lake which is actually where there's an old rock um, called Old Walt, where they've written out in very large letters four lines from Whitman, um, for some reason or other, but anyway, they have. All along the Mazinaw. Later the osprey falling towards only what he sees. The messenger heron warning of our progress up Mud Lake. A paddle is stranger to what it heaves out of the way. Wherever you go within a silence is witnessed, touches, everything aware of alteration but you. Creatures who veer, the torn leaf descending into marsh gas, into an ancient breath. In bony rapids, rock gazed up with the bright paint of previous canoes, but now you, Selah, with the clear river water heart, the rock who floats on her own deep reflection, female rock, limb, holes of hunger we climb into and disappear, one hour in the arms of the Mazinaw. Those things we don't know we love, we love harder. Tanned face, stern rock, the rock lolling, memorized by the Algonquin Mohawk lovers, mineral eye. Oh yes, I saw your dear sisters too before this afternoon's passion, those Depot Creek nights when they unpacked their breasts, serious and full of the fever of loon. For whoever stumbled young, 
onto the August country waters. Um, the next thing I'm going to read is, is a thing in, in a, a lot of bad taste, so we have to kind of uh, hopefully just lower our level of taste if we can. Uh, this is a thing called Elimination Dance, which I wrote some time ago, and I keep rewriting every few years and um, removing some, adding some. And this is based on those dances um, that I went through uh, where you had to, you were dancing, and a caller would say, anyone wearing a red shirt or a green shirt, off the floor, so you had to leave if you or your partner was wearing those things. <laughs> those who are allergic to the sea, those who have resisted depravity, men who shave off beards in stages, pausing to take photographs. <laughs> those who, while visiting a foreign country, have lost the end of a Q-tip in their ear and have been unable to explain their problem. Gentlemen who have placed a microphone beside a naked woman's stomach after lunch and later, after slowing down the sound considerably, have sold these noises on the open market as whale songs. <laughs> All actors and poets who spit into the front row while they perform. Men who fear to use an electric lawnmower, feeling they could drowse off and be dragged by into a swimming pool. Any person who has had the following dream, you are in a subway station of a major city. At the far end, you see a coffee machine. You put in two coins. The Holy Grail drops down. <laughs> then blood pours into the chalice. Any person who has lost a urine sample in the mail. Anyone who's had to step into an elevator with all of the Irish rovers those who have accidentally stapled themselves. Anyone who has been penetrated by a Mountie. Those who have unintentionally locked themselves within a sleeping bag at a camping goods store. Men who have never touched a whippet. Those who have woken to find the wet footprints of a peacock across their kitchen floor. Anyone whose knees have been ruined as a result of performing sexual acts in elevators. Any lover who has gone to a flower shop on Valentine's Day and asked for clitoris when he meant clematis. <laughs> Anyone who has testified as a character witness for a dog in a court of law. Any person who has burst into tears at the liquor control board. Anyone with pain. These are some uh, more recent poems, and these are Books are set in Sri Lanka, but um, the time period is sort of bizarre. It goes back and forth to early centuries and to the present. So it's but the first one actually is not just Sri Lanka, so it's even more confusing. And it's called A Gentleman Kip Compares His Virtue to a Jade, which was I was in a museum and I saw this beautiful little piece of jade and there was an inscription, which was the title, so... The enemy was always identified in art by a lion. And in our book of victories, wherever you saw a parasol on the battlefield, you could identify the king within his shadow. We began with myths and later included actual events. There were new professions, cormorant girls who screamed on prawn farms to scare birds, stilt walkers, tightrope walkers. There was always the untaught hold by which the master defeated the pupil who challenged him. Palanquins carried the weapons of a goddess. We tied bells onto falcons. A silted water garden. Bamboo tubes cut in the 17th century that were used as poem holders. The letter M, the word thereby. There were wild cursive scripts. There was a two-dimensional tradition. Solitaries spent all their years writing one good book. Federico Tassio graced us with reading the racehorse. In our theaters, human beings wondrously became other human beings. Bangles from Polonarua, a nine-chambered box from Gampola, the archaeology of cattlebells. We believed in the intimate life and inner self. A libertine was one who made love before nightfall or without darkening a room. Walking within the Alhambra, blindfolded, to be conscious of the sound of water, your hand could feel it coursing down banisters. 
we coincided our public holidays with the full moon. 3 a.m. in temples, the hour of washing the gods. The Buddha's left foot shifted at the moment of death. That great writer dying called out for the fictional doctor in his novels. That tightrope walker from Kurnagala, the generator shot down by insurgents, stood there swaying in the darkness above us. This next sequence is longer. It's not really one poem. It's sort of a cluster of pieces that connect in some way. And one of the, two of the things that seem to be obsessing me in this is one is sort of the political crisis that's been there now in terms of disappearances. And in the earlier on, the earlier days of the stealing of statues and um, from, from temples to bury them to you know, save them from times of worse destruction, etc. It's called The Forest of Kings, but that's a vague title. By the 8th century, our rough harbors had already drowned Persian ships. We dug cylinders into the earth to discover previous horizons. We had a shoulder gesture which said, stop there, don't try and talk me into this. We smuggled the tooth of the Buddha from temple to temple for 500 years, 1300 to 1800, as well as a library. Once we buried it all under the great medicinal trees, which the invaders later burned. When we lost the books, the poems of science, the invocations. The tooth we picked from the hot loam and carried in our hair and buried again within the rapids of a river. When they had gone, we swam down to it and carried it away in our hair. In the dry zone, we climbed great rocks to rise out of our landscape. Where we saw forests, the king saw water gardens. Along river's path, circling and falling, we could almost see the silver light of it come rushing towards us. In the forest of kings, a dilo oil tree, a pig lily, the blue dawn bonnet flowers, Cape Plumbago, Loxburgh Thorn, Parrot Trees, Pigeonberry, the Night Flowering Jasmine, our Tree of Sorrow. Also Kulka, Chuna, Dasamula, Musteka, Thirisada. In the South, most murders began over the ownership of trees, boundary lines, the fruit, and where it fell. Several murders over one jackfruit tree. A blue light for jaundice, one cot, a nurse's table. Coming in out of sunlight to this dark room, the nurse by her own lamp, a mother on a stool, the upper half of her body asleep against the feet of her child. All evening the frequency of the blue light breaks down yellow pigment. She stands and without waking either one, tests the pulse against her watch. Kulka, Chuna, Dasamula, Musteka, their leaves and twigs sealed in large pots for over a month, then eaten, to bring strength back into the body, the oil from dilo trees to harden broken joints. Ball bearings and nails in the arms, in the head, shrapnel in the feet, the heat of explosions sterilized all metal. The channels in the ear deformed by sound, men without balance, some permanently deaf, shockwaves rupturing air cavities in the stomachs of women, the dying fed morphine in their last minutes, the dead whose bodies could not be found. To be buried in times of war, in harsh weather, in the monsoon of knives and stakes, the iron and bronze gods carried during a night rest of battle between the sleeping camps, floated in catamarans down the coast past Kalathara to be buried for safety. To bury large stone heads during floods in the night, surrounded by flares, dragged from a temple by one's own priests, lifted onto palanquins, covered with mud and straw, men burying the rest of their lives, giving up the sacred among themselves, carrying the faith of a place during political crisis away in their arms, hiding the gestures of the Buddha, Above ground, massacre and race, the heart silenced, the tongue removed, 
the human body merged into burning tire, mud glaring back into a stare. 750 AD, the statue of Samadhi Buddha was carefully hidden, escaping war, the treasure hunters, 50-year feuds. He was discovered by monks in 1968, the figure sitting upright, buried in Anurajapura earth, eyes half-closed, his right hand in the gesture of meditation. Pulled from the earth with ropes, pulled into heat wave, insect noises, bathers splashing. He appeared to be in a state of total detachment from the surrounding world. Bronze became bronze around him. Color became color. The Brother Thief Four men robbed the bronze Buddha at Vaharagala and disappeared from their families. The statue carried long jungle pathways, its right arm raised to the jerking sky in the gesture of protection, reassurance. Towards clouds and bird call, to this quick terror in the four men moving under him. The Buddha with them all night by a small thorn fire, touching the rope at his shoulder, Avana Mudra, gesture of calling for a discourse. Three of the men asleep. The youngest feeds the fire beside the bronze, its dark gemmed eyes. Allows himself honey as night progresses, as sounds quieten and thicken. The shift during night hours to lesser or various animals. Creatures like us, he thinks. Beyond this pupil of heat, all geography is burned. No mountain or star, no river noise, nothing to give him course. His world is a honeypot, a statue on its side, the gaze restless from firelight. He climbs behind the bronze, slides his arm around with a knife and cuts the eyes. Chipped gems fall into his hands. Then startles, wakes innocent out of his nightmare, rubs his own eyes. He stands and breathes night, air deep into himself, swallows all he can of thorn smoke, nine small sounds, a distant coolness, dark peace, like a cave of water. Night fever, overlooking a lake that has buried a city, bent over a table, shaking from fever, listening for the drowned name of a town, Theldenia, Theldenia, there's water in my bones, a ghost of a chance, methods of death, rock paintings eaten by amoebic bacteria, streets and temples that shake within cliffs of night water, someone with fever, buried in the darkness of a room, lightning over that drowned valley, Thomas Merton who died of electricity, but if I had to perish twice, I'm going to read a bit from um, an English patient. The, the main characters are a nurse and a burned patient and a young Indian sapper named Kip, a nickname Kip, and a fourth person named Caravaggio. When she is solitary, she will sit, aware of the nerve at her ankle, damp from the long grasses of the orchard. She peels a plum from the orchard that she has found and carried in the dark cotton pocket of her dress. When she is solitary, she tries to imagine who might come along the old road under the green hood of the eighteen cypress trees. As the Englishman wakes, she bends over his body and places a third of a plum into his mouth. His open mouth holds it like water, the jaw not moving. He looks as if he will cry from this pleasure. She can sense the plum being swallowed. He brings his hand up and wipes from his lip the last dribble which his tongue cannot reach and puts his finger in his mouth to suck it. Let me tell you about plums, he says. When I was a boy. After she has bathed him, he, she breaks the tip of an ampule and turns to him with a morphine, an effigy, a bed. He rides the boat of morphine. It races in him, imploding time and geography the way maps compress the world onto a two-dimensional sheet of paper. The long Cairo evenings, he remembers. The sea of nighthawks. 
hawks the rose until they are released at dusk, arcing towards the last color of the desert, a unison of, perfor unison of performance, like a handful of thrown seed. In that city in 1936, you could buy anything, from a dog or a bird that came at one pitch of a whistle to those terrible leashes that slipped over the smallest finger of a woman so she was tethered to you in a crowded market. In the northeast section of Cairo, above the narrow streets, we looked down upon cats on the corrugated tin roofs who also looked down the next ten feet to the street and stalls. Above, us was our, above all this was our room. Windows open to minarets, felucas, cats, tremendous noise. She spoke to me of her childhood gardens. When she couldn't sleep, she drew her mother's garden for me, word by word, bed by bed, the December ice over the fish pond, the creak of the rose trellises. She would take my wrist at the confluence of veins and guide it onto the hollow indentation at her neck. March 1937, the desert. Maddox is irritable because of the thinness of the air. Fifteen hundred feet above sea level, and he is uncomfortable with even this minimal height. He is a desert man, after all, having left his family's village of Marston Magna, Somerset, altered all customs and habits so he can have the proximity to sea level as well as regular dryness. Maddox, what is the name of that hollow at the base of a woman's neck, at the front here? What is it? Does it have an official name? that hollow about the size of an impress of your thumb. Maddox watches me for a moment through the noon glare. Pull yourself together, he mutters. <laughs> this is a section on um, the patient's memory of his uh, love affair with Catherine, uh, who's a married woman. Um, and this is a section about their, their, their first tentative meetings. And... Uh, it carries on later on in the book. And I'll end with that. The first time she dreamed of him, she woke up beside her husband, screaming. In their bedroom, she stared down onto the sheet, mouth open. Her husband put his hand on her back. Nightmare, don't worry. Yes. Shall I get you some water? Yes. She wouldn't move, wouldn't lie back into that zone they had been in. The dream had taken place in this room, his hand on her neck, his anger towards her that she had sensed the first few times she had met him. No, not anger, a lack of interest, irritation at a married woman being among them. They had been bent over like animals. Her husband brought her the glass on a saucer, but she could not lift her arms. They were shaking, loose. He put the glass awkwardly against her mouth so she could gulp the chlorinated water, something coming down her chin, falling to her stomach. When she lay back, she hardly had time to think of what she had witnessed. She fell into a quick, deep sleep. That had been the first recognition. She remembered it sometime during the next day, but she was busy then, and she refused to nestle with its significance for long, dismissed it. It was an accidental collision on a crowded night, nothing more. A year later, the other, more dangerous, peaceful dreams came. And even within the first one of these, she recalled the hands at her neck, and waited for the mood of calmness between them to swerve to violence. Who lays the crumbs of food that tempt you towards a person you never considered? A dream, then later another series of dreams. He said later it was propinquity. Propinquity in the desert. It does that here, he said. He loved the word. The propinquity of water, the propinquity of two or three bodies in a car driving the sand sea, with her sweating knee against the gearbox of the truck, the knees swerving, rising with the bumps. In the desert you have time to look everywhere, to theorize on the choreography of all things around you. When he talked like that, she heard him, her eyes remaining polite, her mind wanting to slap him. For him, all relationships fell into patterns. You fell into propinquity or distance. She picks up a cushion and places it onto her lap as a shield against him. If you make love to me, I won't lie about it. If I make love to you, I won't lie about it. Then moves the cushion against her heart, as if she would suffocate that part of herself which is broken free. What do you hate most, he asks. A lie, and you? Ownership, he says. When you leave me, forget me. Her fist swings towards him and hits hard into the bone just below his eye. She dresses and leaves. 
Each day he would return home and look at the black bruise in the mirror. He became curious not so much about the bruise, but about the shape of his face. The long eyebrows he had never really noticed before. The beginning of grey in his sandy hair. He had not looked at himself like this in a mirror for years. That was a long eyebrow. A list of wounds. The various colours of this bruise, bright russet leading to brown. The plate she walked across the room with, flinging its contents aside and broke across his head, the blood rising up in her straw hair. The fork that entered the back of his shoulder, leaving its bite marks the doctor suspected were caused by a fox. He would step into an embrace with her, glancing first to see what movable objects were around. He would meet her with others in public with bruises or a bandaged head and explain about the taxi jerking to a halt, or with iodine on his forearm that covered a welt. Maddox worried about his suddenly becoming accident-prone. She sneered quietly at the weakness of his explanations. Maybe it's his age, maybe he needs glasses, said her husband, nudging Magic Maddox. Maybe it's a woman he met, she said. Look, isn't that a woman's scratch or bite? It was a scorpion, he said. Sometimes, when she's able to spend the night with him, they are wakened by the three minarets of the city beginning their prayers before dawn. He walks with her through the indigo markets that lie between South Cairo and her home. The beautiful songs of faith enter the air like arrows, like minarets answering each another, as if passing on a rumor of the two of them as they walk through the cold morning air. The smell of charcoal and hemp already make the air profound. Sinners in a holy city. He sweeps his arm across plates and glasses on a restaurant table so she might look up somewhere else in the city hearing this cause of noise when he is without her. He who has never felt alone in the miles of longitude between desert towns. A man in a desert can hold absence in his cupped hands, knowing there's something that feeds him more than water. He lies in his room, surrounded by pale maps. He's without Catherine. His hunger wishes to burn down all social rules, all courtesy. Her life with others no longer interests him. He wants only her stalking beauty. He wants the minute and secret reflection between them, the depth of field minimal, their foreignness intimate, like two pages of a closed book. He has been disassembled by her. And if she has brought him to this, what has he brought her to? In the apartment there is light only from the river and the desert beyond it. It falls upon her neck, her feet, the vaccination scar he loves on her right arm. She sits on the bed, hugging nakedness. He slides his open palm along the sweat of her shoulder. This is my shoulder, he thinks, not her husband's. This is my shoulder. As lovers, they have offered parts of their bodies to each other like this, in this room on the periphery of the river. We can never love each other again. We will never see each other again, she says. I know, he says. The night of her insistence on parting. She sits enclosed within herself, in the armor of her conscience. He's unable to reach through it, only his body is close to her. Never again, whatever happens. Yes. I think you will go mad, do you understand? He says nothing. An hour later they walk into a dry night. They are in the botanical garden near the Cathedral of All Saints. She sees one tear on him and leans forward and licks it, taking it into her mouth. As she has taken the blood from his hand when he cut himself cooking for her. Blood, tear. He feels everything is missing from his body. This night of her insistence, 28th of September, the rain in the tree is already dried by hot moonlight, not one cool drop to fall down upon him like a tear. He sees the tall row of travellers' palms above them, their outstretched wrists, the way her head and hair were above him when she was his lover. Now there is no kiss, just one embrace. He untugs himself and walks away, then turns. She's still there. He comes back within a few yards of her, one finger raised to make a point. I just want you to know I don't miss you yet. His face awful to her, trying to smile. Her head sweeps away from him and hits the side of the gatepost. He sees it hurt her, notices the winds. Her jerk, her pain is accidental, is intentional. A hand near her temple. You will, she says. How does this happen? To fall in love and be disassembled. 
I was in her arms. I had pushed the sleeve of her shirt up to the shoulder so I could see her vaccination scar. I love this, I said, this pale aureole on her arm. I see the instrument scratch and then punch the serum within her and then release itself, free of her skin, years ago when she was nine years old in the school gymnasium. Thank you very much. If you have any questions, so I'll be happy to. Yes. Um, did you all hear the question? This, uh, why is my um, why am I obsessed with dogs, or essentially writing about dogs? Well, for a long time, actually, I was known as a dog poet, you know. And I stopped for ten years. I, I censored myself. I didn't write any dog poems for about ten years, and no one seemed to notice. I was still called a dog poet, you know. So I don't know. I mean, I just I wrote a couple of poems about dogs, and that stuck with me. And it's like you know, some crime you've committed at the age of five. <laughs> Is still with you. So, I mean, I, I have dogs, and I, you know, write from experience, but you know, and also metaphors, I suppose. You know, but you know, a lot of other people have dog poems. <laughs> and when Seamus Heaney comes here, do you talk about his dog poems or his sheep poems? Um, no, I, I just, I just like them. I think they're kind of superior beings. Yeah. Um, I'm currently writing my undergraduate thesis on you. Oh, no, well, I'm not answering <laughs> any questions then. <laughs> so I was hoping you might be able to write one of the chapters for me in the next question. Um, there seems to be some sort of a relationship in your work between geographical location of your characters, and it seems like the things they do couldn't be done anywhere else. I was wondering if there, there's a reason for that in, in your own personal history. I, I, I don't take this... Uh, I don't really think about this very much. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not trying to be... Devious here, but I, I really don't. I mean, I know people say that you know, the multiculturalism and all those things are important to me, but quite honestly, they are not very important to me. And the search for identity, all these grand things. I, I, as a writer, I don't think you think about these things. I mean, they, they may be there subliminally or subconsciously, and uh, I may be trying to work out the same story and same plot every time. But it's the last thing on my mind when I sit down to write a book. You know, I mean, I don't have a great plan. And um, I usually am much more interested in the personality or the character of somebody or how someone gets out of a house when one leg is broken. You know, that is, it's much more kind of technical or kind of pragmatic. You know, you're dealing with real people as far as you're concerned, not with symbols or metaphors. So um, whether someone like Kip behaves this way in Europe because he's from India or if that's the kind of thing you're talking about, uh, yeah, of course, you know, we are all kind of governed or shaped or deformed by our past, you know, um, in the sense that we don't do this thing because we, are, we did that once in childhood or, or were taught to do something in childhood which we get steered this way as opposed to that way. So, I mean, that seems to be a natural thing, but at the same time, I think in most of the stories, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of interested in other kinds of families, you know, the, not, not the, kind of the, the blood families but the kind of families that get uh, created out of a situation as in, say, an English patient with those four people, where a different kind of family emerges as opposed to a blood family. You know? So then you have the, exactly the opposite kind of education that happens. Anyone want people doing a thesis? <laughs> yep. Um, I heard you, you read a few years ago, um, having just read The English Patient, and... Uh, there was a question and answer session afterwards, and somebody asked you what you were working on now, and you said, I don't know if I'll ever write again. <laughs> and the audience sort of laughed nervously, and, um, but you were serious, and you said, no, really, it just gets harder. Since then, I've wondered why. And it, could you even answer that? Wondered why? It gets harder. Well, I think it really does, because I think, you know, I mean, in a way, it's, it's easy to write if you are innocent, you know, uh, in, in the sense that you can sit down. The first time I wrote prose was in the collective works of Billy the Kid. You know, I was happy with the book, writing these poems. And then I thought, well, I just had to kind of move out. And in that book, I wrote prose, which I, all that prose I never 
there was never a second draft of that stuff. I mean, I was, I'm still quite shocked at that. But, you know, it seemed to have a kind of energy that would seem to be right at that time. And it was pretty much, it was a minimal amount of editing. But I could never write that quickly or that, you know, suddenly. Uh, it happened since. So, I mean, it's, and it gets more and more difficult. It's almost like, you know, each book, I mean, to begin a, a new book anyway is, is, I find, very, very difficult. You know, because you're not, I don't have a plan. I don't have a great plan or anything like that, or even a small plan. So uh, you are sort of just treading water or just moving very tentatively in possibilities of people or plot and stuff like that. And um, I guess you train yourself in each, with each book towards a situation where you are, I suppose, harder on yourself. You know, um, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't write any of the books I've written now the way I wrote them then. It would have to be something completely different because I'm, you know, a completely different person. But I, th I think it really is harder, you know, and, and when you hear of, you know, writers, uh, you know, who've had several books out kind of worrying about the reaction to the book, you, th you kind of laugh. I mean, I, I laugh. But uh, I think it's, it's very understandable that that's, you know, you just, and you seem to get smaller in some way, unless you kind of don't write for a while and then come back in a different voice. And I think that's why for me, you have to have a break between books. And some people can leap into books, you know, overnight, but I can't do that. That was Michael Ondaatje speaking as part of a special event in 1996 in Portland. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for The Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from The Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Archive Project comes from Cole Hahn, the fashion brand that's acknowledging extraordinary people who write, read, and shape the world through their extraordinary stories. Find these and more at colehan.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast. Special thanks to the literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another edition of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.